wife grew up in a home where her parents used to give her a paintbrush and a bucket of water and tell her to go outside and paint the house. And she and her siblings would. And from the outside, you look at that and you say, well, that's, that is a fool's errand. Because painting a house with water might be cheaper, but it's not going to have the same effect, right? As painting it with paint. But for her and for her siblings, it wasn't a fool's errand. They loved it. It was fun. It was a cheap form of entertainment for them, and it was great for the parents too because it was a cheap form of entertainment for the kids, right? What changes between the outsider looking at them painting a house with a paintbrush and a bucket of water and them is really not anything about the act itself but about perspective. As we think about our lives as Christians, we've been tasked with a fool's errand. Not as the world would define a fool's errand. I'm not implying that the Great Commission, which is what we are under as the church, to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ, is something that's not going to prove successful or fruitful or, or beneficial. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm suggesting that we all have been called and tasked with a fool's errand because the message that we've been given is a message that Scripture calls foolishness. Foolishness. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those that are perishing. And it's that word of the cross that we have been tasked to go and bring to the lost all around us. It's that word of the cross, though the cross is not yet in view, that Jesus has been taking to the lost all around him in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John. And just like Jesus, you and I are going to encounter opposition. And you and I are going to encounter people who stand up against us and want to oppose what we're doing. And, and, and these are the times that we need to be reminded that what we're doing isn't a fool's errand in the sense that the world would call it a fool's errand. It's not a fool's errand in the sense that it's going to be unsuccessful or unfruitful. It's times like this when we run into opposition that the right perspective of that opposition is going to keep us going in faithfulness to God. What does that right perspective look like? Well, it looks like this. It's a perspective that thinks biblically and acts lovingly towards the lost in our lives. A perspective that thinks biblically and acts lovingly towards the lost in our lives. We're going to unpack what that looks like from John chapter 6, 41 through 51. Take your Bibles and turn there if you will. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on our welcome table. You can grab one and use it not just for the service, but if you don't want to have one at home, it's our gift to you. Please take that and use it at home as well. But John 6, 41 through 51. We'll get into the opening verses here. It says in verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we, we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So we'll stop there for just a second. Jesus has just had this long uh, conversation with them where he has been talking with them about manna. You remember that? They, they said, hey, if you're better than, than Moses, then Moses gave us manna. What do you have for us? And Jesus had spent that time, and we talked about that last week, telling them that he's better than what Moses could provide for them and that he's the better manna and that they needed to come to him and believe in him because that's the work of God that they needed to be doing and if they would come to him and believe in him, then what would he do? Well, that was the, the part that is right before our passage. He says, I've come to do the Father's will. And the Father's will is that all that come to me and believe in me, that I should lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. And so on the heels of this conversation, as Jesus is calling them to faith in him, as Jesus is saying quite plainly that he is the better Moses, that he has something better than what Moses could provide, what he re receives in response is not the faith that we might hope for or expect, but it's quite the opposite. Verse 41, so the Jews 
grumbled. They grumbled about him. Who does he think he is? I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. What is this guy talking about? Again, remember our context. What did Jesus do right before this? He fed 5,000 men, 15 to 20,000 people with bread and fish. That's a miracle. And you might think, how can you grumble on the heels of a miracle? Well, they're in good company. If you think backwards, and we've been reading in the Old Testament, the, the initial stages of the history of Israel. How many times they grumbled against Moses. What had God just done with the people of Israel? Led them out of slavery in Egypt through pretty miraculous events. Crossing the Red Sea. All of these things. Immediate rearview mirror and what do the Israelites start to do? Well, they start to grumble against God and against Moses. Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, uh, Numbers, these all are different examples of the Israelites grumbling. Numbers 14, uh, Numbers 16. All of these are situations where Israel is grumbling against Moses even after seeing God do amazing things. And so we're here in John's gospel and we see a, a mirror of that taking place right now. They're grumbling. They're grumbling against Jesus right on the heels of this miracle that he had done. What does it mean to grumble? Well, to grumble is to, to murmur. Kind of in their pockets, in their groups, they're, they're talking in low, hushed tones, murmuring about Jesus. What specifically? Well, in response, verse 41, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And so they're, they're grumbling because of what he said, that he's making this claim. Jesus is making some pretty audacious claims in this whole section of John chapter 5 through John chapter 7. That's why this series is called Jesus Uncensored. Because Jesus is pulling the curtain back on who he really is and making these bold statements. And the thing of it is, people aren't going to like this. And we're starting to see the cracks in the facade here. By the time we get to verse 66 in John chapter 6, some of them are just like, forget it, I'm done with the guy. I don't want to follow him. What he's saying doesn't line up. I can't abide by what he's teaching. I can't follow these things that he's saying. And we're beginning to see some of the cracks show up here. They don't like his claims. They don't like that he's saying that he's the better Moses. Or even as we alluded to last week, that if he's the bread from heaven, that he's the better Torah, the better law. That's an audacious thing for Jesus to say. So they're grumbling about him in this regard. How often do we find that still from the world today? We find people who are interested at least initially with Jesus. They're interested in the Jesus that has been put out there by the, the, the pastor that they heard or the, their friends at, uh, across the street or their neighbors or the pop culture or the, the pastor that they saw on TV. And then they show up and when they come face to Bible with the real Jesus, I don't know if I'm really behind this guy anymore. They're grumbling just like the crowds. But it's beyond that. They, they go on in verse 42. It's not just because he said that, but then they go on to, and, and they're questioning who he is, his pedigree. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In other words, they're starting to think, who does this guy think he is? What kind of audacious arrogance does this guy have? We know his parents. This does not imply, by the way, that Joseph was still living at this time, only that this being Galilee, this is Jesus' home territory. So they knew his family. They knew where he came from. And they're sitting there think, thinking to themselves, what is he talking about that he, is the bread came down from heaven? We know Joseph and Mary. We know where he comes from. 
In, in Mark chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus said this. This is, by the way, in close proximity to what's going on right now, just in a different gospel. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except where? In his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. Why? Because of their familiarity with him. They thought they knew the real Jesus. And they had expectations of the Messiah. And the the Jesus that they knew didn't measure up with the expectations that they had for the Messiah that was going to come And so they're struggling with this. In fact, later in John chapter 7, verse 27, the Jews are going to struggle even more. They're going to say, could this be the Messiah? They're wondering about Jesus. But then they're going to say, but wait a minute, we know where Jesus comes from. And when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he comes from. That statement is based off a teaching that was not a biblical teaching, but tradition that held that nobody would know where the Messiah would come from, that he was going to just show up on the scene. And so they're, they're thinking to themselves, we know this guy. Who does he think he is saying that he's the bread come down from heaven? But again, I ask you, isn't this true of the world that we live in today as well? Not, not just that they find things difficult about what Jesus says, but that they also find that their expectations for what Jesus can do for them aren't, aren't fully met when they come to know the, the real Jesus. They may want the Jesus who fixes their marriage because... After all, that's what the the guy told me. Come to Jesus and your marriage will be much better. What if it's not? Or come to Jesus and and he's the the cure for your cancer. Well, what if he's not? Or come to Jesus and, and your bank account will look a lot better than it does right now. Well, what if it doesn't? Or come to Jesus and the, the, the guy you want to win the election will win the election. Well, what if he doesn't? When we come face to Bible with the, the truth about who Jesus is and what he really came to do, a lot of times what we'll find in the world is they're just not interested. Just like this crowd, they begin to grumble and complain about Jesus. Opposition. Opposition. And what I want you to realize and understand is the opposition that you and I experience now is nothing new. They were opposed to Jesus when Jesus was walking the face of the earth. It's not like everybody was like, Jesus is great. Let's all celebrate Jesus. Jesus' earthly ministry was not one big triumphal entry. There were a lot of these pockets of resistance that he encountered. And we have to ask ourselves, okay, if it's nothing new, then is it the same problem then that it is today? And the answer is yes. And what it boils down to is us understanding why it is that people don't believe. And so as you think about the task that we've been entrusted with as the church, go and make disciples. And you think about the opposition that you encounter and the disbelief and the unbelief and the rejection that you experience. It's, it's easy to grow discouraged about that and to feel like, man, maybe this really is a fool's errand the way the world might say it's the fool's errand. And so as we think about persevering through that, as we think about how do I keep going when I feel that way? Well, it's important for us to think biblically and act lovingly toward the lost in a few different ways. The first way is this. We need to remember the lost are spiritually blind. Remember the lost are spiritually blind. That's why they're opposed to Jesus. That's why they don't believe the gospel when you share the gospel with them. Their eyes have been blinded, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, by the God of the world. When my wife and I were back in, in the Dallas area while I was going through seminary, we, we decided to go to this church uh, over in Grapevine, and, and we were there, and it was a small church, and, and we walked in our first day, and we're sitting there, and worship starts, and it's going, and we're hearing music playing, and it's great, and then all of a sudden we hear a recorder from the audience. A recorder, like the kind that your kids get in, in elementary school. And we're starting to look around. 
Like, what's going on? And everybody else is just like, this is, this is what we do here. This is normal. We have recorders in the audience. And uh, it was only afterwards I, I asked one of my friends, I said, what, what's, do we just bring instruments with us to church and play them in the audience? And he said, no. He said, that's Vicky. She can't see. She's legally blind. She can't read the words on the screen. And so the way that she worships is she plays the recorder. Oh, okay. Gave me a different perspective on Vicky in her recorder playing. There's a, a sign, a, a song, a sign. There's a line in the song by the Gettys called O Church Arise. And I love the line. You know what it is? It's this one. It says, our call to war, to love the captive soul and to rage against the captor. To love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. That's what I want us to get to with this first point here this morning. When, when, when the, the, the person you're sharing the gospel with calls you a fool for believing in that, when the person you're sharing the gospel with rejects it outright and says, that's great for you, but not for me, when the person that you're sharing the gospel with takes offense at you as holier than thou, listen, church, I want you to understand that their plight is far greater than any personal attack against you. That their, their desperation is one of spiritual blindness. And they can't see the light of the truth that you're offering them. And so as you think about sharing the gospel, some thoughts to help as we consider this. Number one, remember what Paul said about our task here when he wrote of the armor of God there in Ephesians 6. He said, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual forces that are at work in this present darkness. And so when you are sharing the gospel, you are engaged in spiritual warfare. Some of the most intense spiritual warfare that we know this side of eternity. Sharing the gospel with somebody who is spiritually blind, calling them to believe in Jesus. Your, your opponent is not the person in, in front of you. Your opponent is the enemy who's blinded their eyes. And so that's going to give us a greater compassion and love for the lost as we seek to pursue them with the gospel. So remember that. And then in light of that, a couple of thoughts here. Number one, don't get angry at the lost for being lost. We'll often tell our kids when, when we talk to them about situations that they'll encounter in school and things like that, you can't expect unbelievers to act like believers. And, and so when you're sharing the gospel with someone and they reject you, you can't expect an unbeliever who's spiritually blind to act like a believer who's spiritually sighted. And we're going to talk about how they go from blindness to sight. We're going to get there. But right now, just talking about that rejection, your initial response might be, man, I'm, I'm, that makes me angry that they wouldn't follow. That makes me angry that they would mock me for my faith in Christ. That makes me angry about that. Second, don't blame yourself for their unbelief. If, if you're sharing the gospel with someone and, and they You've, you've laid it out plainly for them, and they say thanks, but no thanks. It's true for you, but not for me. You may walk away defeated and, and, and wearing that personally and say, man, I messed up. Listen, their faith is not a weight on your shoulders for you to bear. We'll talk about that in a moment as well. But don't take their unbelief personally, or, or don't blame yourself for their unbelief. And then on the heels of that, there, here's the, the third point, don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. It's not your reputation at stake when you share the gospel and somebody chooses not to believe. Their spiritual blindness is not about you. In light of that, don't compromise to accommodate their unbelief. 
don't compromise to, to, to say, well, it's okay. You don't really have to, to, to fully surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It's okay for you to continue in your sin, and, and you can just have a little Jesus sprinkled into your life. Right? Don't compromise. Don't, don't water down the gospel to overcome unbelief. Spiritual blindness is not yours to fix. Don't boast also if they do come to faith. If you share the gospel with somebody and they're like, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> That's not a notch in your belt. It's a notch in God's belt. It's not for us to pat ourselves on the back to be like, man, I'm, I'm a pretty good gospel sharer. That person over there shared the gospel. They, they got saved. You're welcome, God. What I'm trying to get us to understand here is we got to take ourselves out of the equation. Understand that there are lost all around us who are spiritually blind. And realize that the task of giving them sight is not one that you and I possess the ability to, to, to accomplish. What can we do? We can share the gospel and trust the God who can give them sight in response to the gospel. Our call to war is to love the captive soul, understanding why they're captive and to rage against the captor. How do we rage against the captor? The greatest way for us to do that is to continue faithfully to take the gospel to the lost in our lives. Not to grow discouraged, not to grow disheartened, but remembering they're spiritually blind, we will be helped a, a great deal in, in our endurance, in our perseverance to bring the gospel to the lost. Verse 43, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus answered their grumbling. Here we see the omniscient Son of God. Because remember, grumbling, what is grumbling? Grumbling is hushed tones murmuring together in, in their individual pockets. Jesus, as the omniscient Son of God, knows all things, knows what's in the heart of man, and he knows what they're grumbling about. So he says, don't grumble among yourselves. And then he, he goes on in verse 44, and he makes this statement, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is, is now explaining more of why it is that they're not believing in him. It's not because failed expectations. It's not because who does he think he is. It's not because he's saying difficult things. It's because the only people that come to Jesus are those whom the Father draws to Jesus. We talked about this from the positive side of things in John 6, 37 last week. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Who comes to Jesus? All that the Father gives him. Now we see the negative side of things. No one can come to Jesus Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Draws. What are we talking about there? What does it mean to draw, to be drawn by God? It's the idea of, of being attracted or pulled to something. It's parallel, if you will, with the, the concept of our calling to salvation. In Romans chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We are called. It's a process of that drawing that we're talking about here. Being pulled, being drawn, being attracted to Jesus. 
Or how about this in, in Romans 8.30? We talked about this last week. It's this unbroken chain that we see here. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Not all are justified. Not all are glorified. That means what? That also not all are called. Not all are called in the sense of a saving call on our lives. There's a general call of the gospel that goes out to all people everywhere. But there's a special call, an effective call of the gospel that is issued to believers. And that is sometimes a process wherein we are being drawn to faith in the Father. And so in John 6, Jesus is saying that no one can come to the Father unless, or come to him unless the Father draws them to him. Consider Paul for a second in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In fact, if you want to flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 1 in your Bibles, that might be helpful. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy is before 2 Timothy. Okay, we're still paying attention. There were a couple of chuckles. After 1 and 2 Thessalonians, then you get into 1 and 2 Timothy. So Paul is writing to young Timothy, his protege, his disciple in the faith. And Paul says this in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though Now notice this. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Y'all, God was drawing Paul even as he was a blasphemer and an insolent opponent of him. Say, so how do you know that? Well, in Acts chapter 22, verse 3, Paul says that he was raised as a student of a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the leading Pharisee as far as uh, tutoring and, and, and discipling other young Pharisees. So think for a moment about Philippians chapter 3. Think how in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, you know who I was? I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was blameless. I was, I was even circumcised on the eighth day. I was doing everything even from before I was able to do it myself. I was perfectly in obedience to the law as much as I knew. In fact, he says, that I was, uh, he says that's to, uh, the law I was a Pharisee. I was an expert in it, and I did everything I do, did to, to keep it. Now, yeah, Paul's going to say that he considers all of that rubbish. And yet, I'm going to say, you know what? God was drawing him even through that process. Because think about that, how that enabled Paul to reflect on and write on the law and engage with the Jewish people to whom he was sent initially there. And how he used his knowledge of the law to write things about the law like in Romans 7. When he says, is, is the law evil? Is the law bad? He says, no, because it's the law that gave me the knowledge of sin to, to, to cause me to understand that I need, I need Christ. And so even as a blasphemer and an insolent opponent, God was drawing Paul to himself. And he's drawing Paul to himself by grace, the grace of our Lord which overflowed for him. What is grace? Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It's unearned. And so God is drawing Paul. And listen, y'all, he's drawn you. Some of you already, and you're in Christ. Others of you, you may be here this morning as an unbeliever, and he may be drawing you presently to himself. In both situations, like Paul, it's an act of grace. You say, okay, how, how do I know that I'm being drawn? Verse 45. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
So the, the, the way we are drawn to Christ by the Father is through hearing from the Father. Hearing by faith. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. I, I talked about our spiritual blindness in point number one. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Here's how sight is imparted. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's a connection here to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Why Jesus? Because of verses 46 through 47. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, that being Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Y'all, Jesus is the key to all of this. People aren't drawn to the Father through their works. People aren't drawn to the Father through their intellect. People aren't drawn to the Father through anyone but the Son. That's why in John 1.14, John wrote, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, let me boil all of this down to our second point here. The, the difference between you and your unbelieving neighbor isn't that you're smarter or wiser. The, the difference between you and your unbelieving neighbor isn't that you were raised in the church or went to a Christian school. The, the difference between you and your unbelieving neighbor is solely and completely a matter of God's grace. And that's it. And understanding that helps us as we strive to think biblically and act lovingly toward the lost in our lives. We realize, man, they are spiritually blind. And the only hope for them is that God the Father might draw them to the Son by imparting to them the knowledge of salvation, the knowledge of Christ. And it's our job as the church, as his ambassadors, to go out with the message that contains the kernel of that knowledge, which is the gospel. And so as we call people to believe in that, what we're doing is we're not calling them to a, a, a meritorious position, but quite the opposite. We're calling them to understand and come to faith that can only be granted to them by God's grace. That is, by God's unmerited favor. Second point this morning is just that. Remember, grace is unmerited favor. As we seek to, to think biblically and act lovingly towards the lost in our lives, we have to keep this in mind. That grace is not about status, that grace is not earned, that grace is not ours because we're better than or more knowledgeable than. Grace is a free, unmerited gift that God has given us. Did you know that Michael Jordan was cut from his middle school basketball team? I did because I was cut from my middle school basketball team. And so I walked away and said, MJ was cut too. <laughs> yeah, the difference is, I was also cut after that and, and again and again and again and again and again and again. And eventually he wasn't cut. He, he, he worked out, that whole basketball thing worked out okay for Michael Jordan. What's the point? You earn a spot on a team, right? To, 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 to make a team, you have to make the team. And the way you make a team is by your own efforts, by your own merits, by being good enough. You don't make the team in Christianity. There's no tryouts for Christianity. You're not here because, in other words, God thought that you were going to be a better investment of his grace than someone else. You're not here because God was impressed with your pedigree. 
You're not here because you're a great salesperson and God thought, you know what? I need a closer on my team. You're not here because of your gregarious and outgoing personality. You're not here because of your track record. You're not here because of your upbringing. You're not here because of your wisdom and your intellect. And, And you're certainly not here because you found God. In fact, it's the exact opposite. You are here because God found you. As Romans 5 says, when you were a weak, ungodly, sinful enemy of God. You are here because of the unmerited favor of God. You are here because God drew you to Christ so that you might come to believe that he died on the cross for your sins so that your sins can be forgiven and that he gave you his full righteousness so that you are not just not guilty, but you are innocent now, in fact, before the eyes of the Father because you have the full righteousness of Jesus now. And he drew you to to believe in that and also to believe that Jesus rose from the dead three days later so that one day you too will rise from the dead to live forever with Christ. That is God's grace in your life. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. And so what does this mean for you as you think about thinking biblically and loving loving the lost in your life, acting lovingly towards them? A, A couple things here. Number one, your neighbor has not forfeited their chance with God. If it's not earned, then it can't be unearned. Nobody deserves it. And so your neighbor who has rejected you multiple times, your, your coworker who has said, that's good for you, but not for me, you don't have to walk away going, well, I gave it my best shot. I guess there's another soul going to hell. Grace is not bound by our schedule, nor by our actions. That's what makes grace, grace. Your your boss isn't beyond the reach of God's saving arm. Your spouse is not a hopeless cause. Your kids are not too far gone. Your brother has not sinned too much. Just like when God saved you, you weren't too far gone. You hadn't sinned too much. And the grace that you needed is the grace that they need. And that's what makes grace, grace. It's unearned, it's unmerited, it's undeserved, and it's so often unexpected. And so that frees us up and encourages us, Christian, when we encounter opposition, just like back in John chapter 6, when Jesus is encountering this opposition from the crowds, notice here that he's not looking at them and saying, I'm done with you. But he's continuing, continuing to pursue them, to put the truth in front of them. Speaking of grace, if you'll grab your Bibles, turn over to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Nope, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I was way off. I don't even know where I was going there. You can go to 1 Corinthians 12. You're just going to be confused for a minute. 1 Corinthians 1, okay. 26 through 31, okay. Ready for a backhanded compliment from, from, from God through Paul? This is for all of us. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Well, thanks. Thanks, Paul. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Notice that. Because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
1 Corinthians 1, there, that whole section is all about, listen, God didn't choose people that look like they deserve it. Now, that's not to say that he didn't save some who were wise according to worldly standards also. It doesn't mean that he doesn't save people who are of noble birth. But it just means that he saves us without distinction of those, of those things. It doesn't matter if you live in the, 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 the wealth district or the impoverished district. Both people need the same grace. It doesn't matter if you went to Harvard or you're somebody who never darkened the doors of a, of a college. You both need God's grace. Maybe the Harvard people even a little bit more. No, we all need the same measure of God's grace because it's unmerited for all of us and none of us deserve it any more than anyone else. And so as we think about that, Think of your own story of salvation, how God's grace showed up in your story. Think about how God drew you to himself through other people in your life and through other situations in your life when you weren't even aware of what was going on to begin with. And yet God was working. God was drawing. God was calling you to himself. Or think about uh, the, the lost in your life right now and consider this for a minute. What if God is using you to draw them right now? Paul says elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the, the, this analogy of planting and watering. And he's talking about how everybody's factionalizing. Everybody's like, well, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And I'm of this guy over here. And I'm of Jesus, right? Listen, Paul says, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Yeah, I may plant, he may water. But what does Paul say after that? But God causes the growth. Church, you may be the planter. You may be the waterer. You may get the privilege of being the harvester. But understand this, you can have confidence and hope and, and purpose behind what you're doing as you take this message of folly to a perishing world. Every time you share the gospel, that God could be at work in that person's life, drawing them to himself. Because grace is unmerited favor. And as long as they're still breathing, they haven't lost their shot. They haven't lost their chance. And so we can go back to them with the gospel again. So stay humble, remembering your own grace, your own story. Stay faithful, stay persistent, stay present, and stay praying. Because you never know when God might flip that grace switch in their life. Jesus did this. That's why he's not gone. He's still here with this crowd. He didn't just walk away. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice here, y'all, Jesus is rehashing a lot of what he's just said with them. I'm the bread of life. In fact, he said that back in John 6, 35. And he's talking about the bread coming down from heaven and he's talking about manna again. He's rehashing again all of the stuff that he had just told them. All of the stuff that they were upset about, that they were murmuring about, that they were grumbling about, that they were complaining about. He's going back over those things with them once again. He ends here by, by saying this statement that we're going to pick up on next week and dive into more when he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We're going to talk about that in more detail next week, okay? What I want you to focus on and understand here is I want you to see the patience of Jesus. I want you to see how patient and loving he is towards this crowd. That he's going back to them again, calling them to believe, calling them to partake of the true 
bread of life. Again, unmerited favor. They didn't deserve this. Jesus could have washed his hands with them. Jesus could have smote them all on the spot. But he didn't. He's patient with them. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. He's trying to get, will you not understand what I'm saying here? You're so impressed with the manna. What did the manna result in? Death. They still died. I'm telling you, you can have something here. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is patiently pursuing them and calling them back to himself again in spite of their opposition. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. I want you to notice Jesus' posture towards the opposition. It's one of patience. He's pursuing them. He's inviting them. In some ways, in fact, he's even growing even more detailed in the invitation as they reject him. We've already addressed the reality that we walk amongst the spiritually blind in this world, and, and, and we do. And that should make us ready to encounter their unbelief. And we should do so with that humility, that humble posture, knowing that we too were once just as blind as they were and that we needed the grace of God just as much as they do right now. But finally, if we're to think biblically and love and act lovingly toward the lost in our lives, we have to follow Jesus' example here. And we have to keep patiently pursuing them despite their unbelief. To do that, a third reminder for us this morning that's going to help this is that we need to remember God's patience towards us. Remember God's patience towards you. His patience with you. Again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, 16, he said, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. That people might be able to look at, at Paul's life and go, Man, God was so patient with you, Paul. And that he might be able to say, Exactly! That's exactly it. You get it. He was so patient with us. When my kids were younger, we would sing a song to them about patience. Have patience, have patience. Anybody else in the room know that song? No, just my wife and I. Awesome. I got one hand up in the back. Don't be in such a hurry, for when you're impatient, you only start to worry. Remember, remember that God is patient too. And think of all the times others had to wait on you. There's some biblical truth mixed into that silly little rhyme. Think of all the times that God waited for you, waited on you. God was patient with me during the years of my self-righteous pride. Same years, by the way, I was firing bottle rockets out of the back of a pickup truck driving up and down Preston Road and dropping dry ice bombs in the gutters around the neighborhoods that we grew up in, just doing really, really dumb things. He was patient with me not to let me injure myself permanently. But he was, he was also patient just in the countless times before I got saved that I got in my car and made it safely from point A to point B. God was patient with me during that. He was also patient with me just to sustain my health in general. He was patient with me to sustain my, my mental faculties. He was patient with me 
to sustain my, my life. He, he was patient with me even more than that. He was patient with me in my nominal Christianity. While I was on the student leadership team in our high school youth group and leading worship from the front and telling people that I was saved because I trusted in being a good kid. God was patient with me then. He was patient with me in my pride. He was patient with me in my misunderstanding. He was patient with me in my hard-heartedness. God was patient with me in my sin. He was patient with me in my rationalization. He was patient with me in my low view of him. He was patient with me in my filthy rags of good works. How do I know? What's the evidence of his patience? Well, his patience is seen in the fact that he kept pursuing me. Because I merited it? No. But he kept pursuing me in spite of me through pastors and friends and mentors, and ultimately he chose to remove my spiritual blindness at a summer camp in June of 2001. He was so patient with me. There were so many times that not only could I have died, but I probably should have died. If God was so patient with me and kept pursuing me in spite of my unbelief, how can I not do the same thing to pursue the lost in my life in the midst of their unbelief. Who am I to write someone off? Who am I to, to wash my hands of them and say, well, they, they, they clearly don't want anything to do with Jesus, so I'm done with them. Can you imagine if God had done that to you? I, I'm so glad he didn't do that to me. Jesus didn't wash his hands of this crowd and walk away in frustration, but kept coming back and kept rehashing the same things with them. So let me challenge you, church. Maybe you've got somebody in your life that's been resistant to you, and you think to yourselves, man, how many more times? They mu- okay, God, maybe it's just your will that they're never going to come to faith. Don't do that. You don't know. George Mueller prayed for five guys for for salvation. For two of those guys, he prayed the rest of his life and died before they came to faith in Christ. And then they got saved after he died. Imagine if George Mueller had said, you know what, forget it. They're they're clearly not going to come to faith in Jesus. Keep sharing. Keep pursuing. Keep loving. Keep praying that God will remove their blindness. But let me talk to you in the room this morning. If that's you, if you're the one that's been resistant. And, and I want you to, to think this morning of how God has been so patient with you in your life to this point. That you are sitting here this morning and your heart is pumping blood through your body as an evidence of his patience with you. Realize how gracious and kind he's been to sustain you to this point. And the fact that you were here this morning tells me he's been gracious and kind to the point that somebody brought you here this morning that cares about your eternal soul. Don't presume upon that patience and think that you'll be back next week. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, I want to challenge you to do something this week that may sound a little strange, but humor me, if you will. Go find a cemetery and walk through it this week. And count the number of headstones of people in that cemetery who died younger than you are right now. And ask yourself, why Am I any different than they are? 
why do I have rights to another year of life any more than they do? The only reason your heart stays beating this morning is due to God's patience with you. But there is a time that that patience will run out. You don't know when that is. I don't know when that is. The person who invited you to be at church this morning with you, they don't know when that is either. But what hangs in the balance is eternity. What hangs in the balance is whether or not you will spend an eternity with God in the presence of his goodness and kindness and mercy and grace and compassion or whether you will spend eternity in the presence of God's wrath for your sin. 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter says, God is not slow to fulfill his promises, but his patience. He's being patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. We've talked about this. Not everybody will. Not everybody will. The opportunity is before you this morning to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus as your Savior. To trust that in Christ you can have salvation because Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and that he gave you his perfect righteousness. It's called the great exchange. He takes your sins and pays for them, you get his perfect righteousness for free. That he died on the cross for your sins and gave you his righteousness, and that he rose from the dead so that you too will one day rise again to live forever with Christ. This morning that offer is there, and God is patient with you this morning to give you the opportunity to repent from your sins and to trust Jesus, to stop presuming on God's patience, to stop thinking I'll deal with this when I get older, to stop thinking I'll have another opportunity, I'll deal with it next week, to stop thinking, you know what, this is fine, but, but I'll have the, the thief on the cross conversion moment. Listen, the thief on the cross knew when death was coming. You don't. Don't think you do. Today is the day of salvation is what scripture says. Repent and believe in Jesus. For the rest of us, yeah, we live in a world that doesn't like Jesus. Jesus is going to tell us that explicitly in John chapter 14. He's going to be, don't, don't be surprised when the world hates you. How we respond to that, though, is really all a matter of perspective. Is it a fool's errand to take the gospel to the lost? No, not as the world would define a fool's errand. Because God is able, by his unmerited favor, to give sight to the spiritually blind. And it may be that his patience with the lost in your life is just waiting for you to bring the gospel to them tomorrow or next week or later today. And God will say, this is the moment, this is the time. And he will give them the faith to believe. So no, it's not a fool's errand the way the world thinks of it as a fool's errand. But it is the message of foolishness. It is the message of folly that you and I have been tasked to take to the lost. And as we encounter opposition, it's just good for us to think about and remember these three things so that we can keep going, keep pressing on, keep sharing the gospel, keep pursuing, in spite of the opposition that we may encounter, trusting God with the results. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness, your grace in our lives. We thank you that Christ is our foundation. We thank you 
Lord, for just the, the, the great and good news it is that we are forgiven, not because of anything we do to earn it, Lord, which means that we haven't done anything. Anyone in this room who's not yet in Christ hasn't done anything yet to forfeit it or to lose it. God, we thank, that, thank you that the spiritual sight comes through your work in our lives and not human in, intelligence and human wisdom, but through you shining the light of the knowledge of Jesus into the hearts of the lost. Lord, I pray that you'd be kind to do that this morning. It truly is Christ alone, cornerstone. It all comes down to him. May we be faithful as his ambassadors to go out and take the message of salvation by faith in Christ to the world around us. And God, I pray that you would allow us to plant the seeds and to water them. And that ultimately, God, I pray that you would allow us to see a great harvest of souls who will repent and put their trust in Jesus and join the ranks of your bride. It's an act that you have to do in their lives, God, and we pray that you would do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.